Hello and welcome to the 27th episode of How Not to Suck at the Socks. This is your host, Dan Hansen. Two disclaimers. One, this show is for entertainment purposes only. And number two, this show is extremely not safe for work. And this particular episode is on personal finance. So you have to realize this is generic personal finance advice you're going to find in any personal finance textbook. It may or may not pertain to you and your individual financial situation. So please consult your own personal uh, advisor, etc. Do not sue me. In any case, so this episode is entitled Investing 100. The implication there is that these are the things you should be doing before you even think about investing. Before you can invest, you need to be on firm financial footing. In other words, you need to have money to invest before you can invest. You don't want to invest uh, your rent money, so to speak. So uh, let's get started. Let's say I came to you and I said, hey, Bob, what would you do if I told you I could guarantee you over 20% return every year tax-free? That's over 20% a year guaranteed tax-free. Well, you'd probably call me a low-down filthy liar, probably call me a whore, probably call me a snake oil salesman, the next Elon Musk, etc. But the more astute listeners out there perhaps know where I'm going with this, and that is you should be paying off your credit card debt. When you borrow money from Visa, from MasterCard, etc., you are paying over 20% for that money. So therefore, it makes no sense to go and then put that money in the stock market. Over the long term, the stock market has returned about 10% a year. I think that's going back to like the 50s. That's including dividends. I'm not going to get into a debate whether or not the future is going to replicate the past, etc. But let's just use 10% as just a nice round number to use for the rest of this episode. So if that's our expectation, it makes no sense to have our cost of capital be 20%. And the interest rate we're, we're growing at, at 10%. And I think people understand that intrinsically in their daily lives. For example, an Uber driver understands that if they're paying over $30 in gas and it's taking a few hours of their time, then the fare they, they receive in return has to be worth their time and, and cost. But as soon as you move the same concept into the financial realm, for whatever reason, the waters get murky, common sense get lo- gets lost. And you see this all the way up. Uh, the chain of command all the way to the, you know, the CFO and the CEO, which that's time for another episode. I'm going to be talking about the Disney and Fox deal at some point in the, in the near future. But in any case, uh, so along the short of it, pay off your credit card debt because that 20% is just too high a hurdle rate for you to reasonably, maybe in any given year, sure, anything can happen. You can get 30% of your fucking money in the stock market. But in aggregate, your expected value is going to be lower, much lower than 20% in the stock market. So it makes more sense to pay off your debt. And I realize that's easier said than done. I've never had that issue myself, but I know people who have. And the strategy they use is very simple. It's a very common strategy. And that is simply to open up new credit cards at 0% interest or low percent interest for a year or whatever, and then transfer your high uh, interest bearing debt to your low interest uh, bearing credit cards. Um, and then pay off your high interest debt, which again should go without saying, but I know people who have had all, all these different streams of debt and they're working hard to pay off uh, the lower interest before the high interest. And I've never been able to quite understand that one myself. But again, for whatever reason, when you move into the realm of finance, uh, common sense kind of gets thrown away. So moving on from credit card debt, how about more uh, a, a lower debt, lower form of debt, student loans? So student loans, let's call it 7 8 9%. Does it therefore make sense to borrow money at eight, 7 8 9% and then go into the stock market and try to achieve a return of 10% or higher? Um, the answer is not necessarily a definitive no. We've all read the stories of students who've you know, taken their student debt and not paid it off, invested in Bitcoin, and now they're living in the Bahamas somewhere. Uh, the idea isn't whether or not it's possible. The idea is if it's, you know, if what your expected value is going to be. 
And even though the expected value of the stock market is going to beat the hurdle rate of a 7, 8, 9%, uh, the word of caution I would have for you is your cash outflows in this scenario are fixed. In other words, that debt has to be paid come hell or high water, whereas your cash inflows coming from the stock market, there's no guarantee with that at all. It's highly volatile. You could have another lost decade like we saw in the 2000s. And so what you could be end up doing is fucking over your entire life just to achieve you know, a few percentage points a year, which uh, I, I don't think it makes any sense to gamble with life-changing money in order to receive non-life-changing money. If, if, and hopefully, hopefully that just makes sense. So it isn't a flat, no, you shouldn't do it. It's just something to think about. It'd be comparable to going to the bank and borrowing 8% to hope to return, hope to receive you know, 10%. It doesn't, doesn't necessarily make sense. And then when you include you are going to be paying taxes on your return, you throw that into it, it's going to squeeze the numbers a bit. But the point isn't the specific numbers. The point is the overall concept of how much of a margin of safety you really want when you're dealing with something as volatile as a stock market. And speaking of which, the volatility of the stock market is not something new. I, I feel I hear this all the time. People say, "Whoa, it's such a volatile time, especially now." And it's like it's no more volatile than it's ever been. Like the stock market has always gone up and it's always gone down. And if you're looking at a graph going back to the 1920s or whatever, um, if it's an arithmetic graph, it's going to be. Uh, highly uh, disillusioning. It's going to make it look like the stock market was a steady eddy for decades, and now it's on this roller coaster. No, it's really just the way like, the way large numbers work. You know, a fifty dollar change back in the nineteen thirties doesn't look doesn't even show up on the radar. But back then, it could have been a twenty percent uh, change, whereas a fifty dollar you know change now, um, you know, is, is relatively nothing. So anyway, you'd want you'd want to look at a, a geometric. No, it's not called geometric. You want to look at a logarithmic, um, scaled view of the stock market to see that the volatility we have recently is not, uh, you know, anything out of the ordinary. It's, it's the stock market goes up and it goes down, and you get paid for that volatility. Incidentally, it's called the equity risk premium. Uh, stocks over the long term, not every long term, but over in aggregate, return more than bonds, and that's because of that short term volatility. Uh, you know, people there. There's uh, utility to having a fixed income stream because your if your outflows are fixed, you perhaps want your inflows to be fixed, and you you pay a premium for that level of security, that liquidity, whatever you want to call it. So um, you pay a premium to have it, and you get paid a premium not to have it. So, and we'll get to that a little bit more uh, later in the episode. Uh, so, what about debt? Uh, that's much more. Um, you know, kind of manageable. So a mortgage, for example, that's three, four, five percent. Then when you include the after-tax implication of it, it's you know it's even lower. Um, in that case, I'd probably go. And again, this is just my personal situation. Is I'd just go ahead and fucking gamble in the stock market. Like I have friends who have mortgages at you know four or five percent, and they're paying it down as fast as they fucking can. It's like, dude, money's never been cheaper. Like this is super cheap money. You have it locked in for thirty fucking years. Like why are you trying? Why are you so quick to pay it off? You could be. You know, investing it, you're doing, and these are people who really don't know what they're doing. So I kind of understand it's better to have you know a five percent guaranteed than to be investing in something you really don't understand. Um, but uh, I don't know if I'm going to get to this point in this episode, perhaps in a future one. But investing isn't something you, you can afford not to understand. You know, people think they're playing it safe uh, by not investing, and it's like it's like choosing not to run in the running with the bulls. I'm just going to walk. I don't want to trip and fall. It's like, well, you may think you're being safe, but the bull perhaps has a different. Uh, different idea. So you, you you have to invest if you want to have any sort of retirement. I mean, you, you should be understanding it. I mean, letting other people handle your money. It's a, I always equate it to like having sex with your wife. Like, yeah, maybe some other guy's better at it, but you should still probably be doing it yourself. That's how I kind of look at um, as far as handling your own finances is concerned. 
So, so with the mortgage, I, um, you know, now you're entering the realm of reasonability, where if you have such cheap money, such a low hurdle rate, that it becomes uh, perhaps responsible to be investing it rather than paying it off. But again, that's all a matter of preference. I'm not trying to tell you your specific situation, what you should be doing. Uh, moving on, uh, emergency fund. So the idea behind an emergency fund is you should have three to six months worth of expenses uh, saved up and ready to go in case you lose your job. But the stock market going down and you losing your job are two highly correlated events. So your emergency fund shouldn't necessarily be invested in the stock market unless you can afford just a huge emergency fund. Like I have a friend who has uh, an enormous emergency fund. So even that if the stock market went down 75%, he'd still have a six-month emergency fund or even even greater. And that's just an example of how the rich can get richer and the poor, uh, not necessarily so. Um, but yeah, so to, to break it down, how to give you an example of how difficult it can be to achieve an emergency fund, a six-month, and actually before I get to the example of how difficult it is, I really want to delineate what that means. Uh, an emergency fund, uh, it needs to have every expense in there. Okay, so that includes you know your rent or your mortgage, your, all different types of insurances, gas, a regular car maintenance. You know your your car insurance coming up isn't an emergency, so that shouldn't be coming out of the fund. But that should be there in case you lose your job and you're going to have to pay it off. Anything that's foreseeable, you know your phone bill, your electric bill. At, like, look look at your credit card statement. Figure out where your cash flows are going. If you're not keeping a budget, a fool and his money are soon parted. If if, if you if you have so much money that it doesn't matter, congratulations. But assuming you don't, then you need to keep a budget. It's just the way it is. You need to see where your money's going, how much you're taking in, how much is going out. It's, you need to have your mind on that. And if, like I said, if you don't, a fool and his money are soon parted. But so really break down every expense, food, clothing, etc., And you know, really have a realistic, what your realistic expense is. And then that offers six months. So if you lose your job, it isn't the end of the fucking world and you won't be forced to sell assets at depressed prices. So if you're investing in the stock market and the stock market loses 50% of its value and you lose your job, you don't want to be in a situation where you're selling your stock for 50 cents on the dollar. That's, that's, that's an example of how the rich get richer and the poor get poorer. Because when the stock market crashes, the rich are sitting on enough money to where they can buy up assets at deflated prices and the poor are forced to sell those assets to the rich. And that's one of the reasons why the poor are justifiably and understandably afraid of investing in the stock market because um, you know, if you don't do it properly, uh, you can, of course, come out with the worst end of the stick. But like I said, you don't really, it's kind of a false choice. You have to play the game. We live in a capitalist society. You have to play the game. Capital, capitalism is inherently biased towards those with capital. If you do not have capital, uh, you're a slave. You're fucked. You go to work every day for a paycheck, and you're you're always in debt, and you're never. It's it's serfdom. I mean, essentially, if you if you allow it to be, the only way you're ever going to get ahead is by investing your money. When you invest your money, you're using your money to buy other people's labor. And this is this is an abstract concept that perhaps is off is a, is a tangent, but I want to get into it now as good as time as any. Um, when you go to work, they pay you your hourly rate. And, but they're profiting off you, assuming it's a profitable company. They're profiting off you in some way. And that money is going to pay other, other departments, other expenses, plan property, equipment, et cetera. It's paying taxes. It's paying interest rates, et cetera. But then there's a profit. And that profit is left over for the, the shareholders, the owners, uh, whoever owns the company. And so you want to be uh, the bourgeois in the situation. You want to be the one that is owning labor, 
So when you, well, that's how I think of investing. When I invest money, I am in, I am buying other, the future of other people's labor. I'm just taking little deeds. And uh, and meanwhile, so the the more other people's labor you own, the less labor you actually have to do. So labor, uh, it's it's romanticized, you know, Bruce Springsteen and it's like Bob Dylan. It's just romanticized as if like going to work and a hard day and coming home with dirty hands is just you know like the the bee's knees, the best thing you can do. Like meanwhile, the rich are laughing all the way to the bank out on a golf course somewhere. You know, if if you like to work, great, but there's nothing romantic about it. Yeah, it's just I'd much rather like getting uh, getting paid X amount of dollars without having to work is clearly better than getting paid X amount of dollars with having to work. That's just that's just common sense. So where was I? Emergency fund. Okay, so let me get back on on track here. Um, so uh, to show you how difficult it can be to build up an emergency fund is I'm going to use some simple math here. Let's assume your income is equal to your expenses, and let's assume you can save ten percent of your income. I realize these two points contradict. That's fine. It's just an example. Um, in order to build up a six-month emergency fund, that would take you 60 months. So for 60 months, you'd save 10%, and that would build up a six-month emergency fund. Hopefully, everyone followed that math, as erroneous as it may be, given the assumptions. Um, six, 60 months, that's five years just to build up an emergency fund. That's a long time. So that shows you how difficult it can be, but that doesn't mean make it any less uh, worthwhile uh, a goal. Uh, so, so moving on from emergency fund. Uh, next up, time horizon. So, I talked a little bit before about the equity risk premium. So, uh, a friend of mine was like, "Hey, I got five hundred bucks. I want to invest it for a year. What should I do with it?" You should probably just put it into a year-long CD, earning you know two percent on it. Pardon me. That's the best thing you can do. If you put it into the stock market, there's no guarantee you're going to have it in a year. Stock market in a year can go up, down, sideways. Uh, so. Time horizon has to do with when you need the money. So uh, do you need the money for a mortgage, you know, a down payment on a mortgage? Do you need it for putting your kid into college? Do you need it to, to retire, et cetera? You, you often hear the rule of thumb, take 100 minus your age, and that's what percent of your portfolio should be in stocks. Uh, that's It correlates with the correct uh, answer, but the causation isn't there. In other words, it doesn't – your age – correlates with your time horizon, but it doesn't necessarily define your time horizon. For example, you could be very young and have a very short time horizon. You can be very old and have a very long time horizon. So you want to think when you need the money. So my own personal example, my own personal life, um, I'm 34. I have no plans on a down payment. I have no plans on having a kid, let alone having to fucking pay for one's college. And I have no plans on retiring for the next 30 years. So it makes I am 100% in a stock. It, it makes absolutely no sense for me to own a bond. I don't care what uh, you know, some financial advisor says. I don't give a fuck what some professor says. Uh, why wouldn't I just take all the premium I can for the volatility, for the short-term volatility? If I, if I have a time horizon of 30 years, what the fuck do I care about a fifty percent drop in the market? As long as you know, as long assuming it has not to do with like you know a biological attack or something of the sort. Assuming it's uh, you know temporary. Um, so, for example, when the stock market it went down sometime recently, vaguely, I remember that back in November, and I have a friend who was freaking out about it, and he hated that our Apple stock was going down. And like, just buy more. Like, you're a net buyer. Warren Buffett talks about this all the time. If you're a net buyer of something, why would you want the price to be going higher? You should be wanting the price to go because the, the cash flows are staying the same. So your ownership of the business is staying the same. Your, the dividends, etc., are staying the same. The only difference is the price uh, that you're paying. 
So why would you be upset about them? Now, it would make sense if you needed that money soon. If you, you know, if you're just about to, you know, take that money out of the stock market for a huge purchase and it goes down 50%, then you're, of course, justified in your, in your ire. Uh, to use a word you're only ever going to find on a crossword puzzle. Um, but if you have a long time horizon, it just has never made any sense to me. So yes, at 34, I will just take all the the short-term volatility risk I could possibly get my hands on because there are people out there, like those of you with 7 8 9% student loans who cannot afford uh, you know, to take that risk. So I will gladly take it and get paid the premium. Um, so yeah, know your time horizon. Uh, next up, so uh, before I, I mentioned a guaranteed 20% return, well, fuck that, that's nothing. What if I could guarantee a guaranteed 50% return? I'm not quite sure if it's tax-free. Uh, I think it kind of depends. I'm not going to get into that. Uh, but I'm, t- of course, talking about a 401k. So uh, if your employer will match your retirement contributions, uh, a lot of people just leave this on the table. They complain they don't make enough money, and then they're not taking full advantage of the benefits that they have been offered. So, for example, let's keep the math simple. Let's say you have a hundred thousand uh, dollar salary, and you can afford you can uh, invest up to six percent of it a year into your four hundred one k, and your employer will match up to fifty percent. That's a that's three grand you're just leaving on the table if you do not invest that six thousand dollars. And so, when you invest that six thousand dollars, you get the three thousand dollars. It might have to invest over a period of time, but this. This is an example. So, um, so that's a 50% return, and that's guaranteed, and you're just leaving it on the table. And the, the proper way to think about opportunity cost here is so if you don't invest that $6,000 and you instead go buy something with it, like, I don't know, a fucking pool table or something, you didn't just spend 6000 you spent 9000 And that's really the proper way to think about it is map it out in your head. Okay, so uh, scenario A I, uh, I take the $6,000, I invest it, okay, I end up with 9000 So the scenario A is you have $9,000. Scenario B is you have a pool table. Okay, the opportunity cost of that pool table is $9,000. Incidentally, the opportunity cost of that $9,000 was a pool table, but in any case. Uh, so that's uh, something else to consider. Um, so be have all your ducks in a row and be contributing to that before you necessarily be investing. And again, that's your own personal situation. I don't like the idea of 401ks. I actually want the liquidity of that money for the rest of my life, but eh, that's just me. And uh, finally, I want to make a case for uh, index funds. I'm at 18 minutes. I don't know how much time I really have for this, so I'm probably going to throw it into the next episode, which makes sense because that would be Investing 101. So the next episode, uh, Investing 101, I'll touch upon why you should be doing index investing as opposed to uh, individual securities. And then eventually, for those of you who just wanna, don't want to heed any advice whatsoever, I'll do an episode on how to actually research a stock, and I'll probably call that Investing 102 or 201 or something of the sort. But in any case, uh, thank you very much for listening. This went way over. Hopefully this was helpful for you. Um, And thank you. Good night. Love you all. Appreciate it. You guys are great. Fantastic. Love you. Bye-bye.